Hello, I'm Jen Hale Christie, and you're listening to Preach Her, a podcast for people who love Jesus or are open to it. This is season one, episode two, and we're jumping into the gospel according to Luke. Well, I should say we're dipping our toes in the water and wading in slowly because we're going to back up and cover some ground that helps set the stage for where we are when the book opens. Whether you're new to Jesus and the Bible or have studied and believed your whole life, there's something for you here. Today, we're going to spend our time in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. Right from the beginning, we learn about two totally unexpected pregnancies. And not only that, the news comes from an angel named Gabriel. We learn about a woman named Elizabeth who will give birth to John the Baptist and Mary who will give birth to Jesus. And before we get to those, we need to back up and consider some cultural and religious and political realities. If we just pick up and start reading the New Testament, it's like starting to watch the fourth episode of the third season of a show without any context for what's going on and who the characters are. So before we dive into these ancient texts, we need a recap of what's happened up until this point and how it might affect our hearing and our interpretation of the texts. Like the other three Gospels, Luke's is written decades after these events actually happened, and it's set in Palestine, but was written for people who lived elsewhere. It's reporting on what happened there and why it's important here. It's reporting on what happened then and why it's important now. Luke is writing in the first century CE, and he acknowledges that several others are writing about the same things. And he assumes that his readers are familiar with certain historical events of the last few centuries before that. And in sharp contrast, we are obviously living in the 21st century CE. A lot has changed since then. One significant reality for his audience was that in the time between when these events happened and when he actually wrote them down, the temple had been destroyed. He's sharing stories about Jesus and his followers, and then in the book of Acts, he shares about how the early church grew and the issues that they wrestled with and how the gospel spread out from Jerusalem. But the things that are recorded in these books, when they were happening in real time, the temple was still standing. When he wrote them down, the temple had been destroyed. For the second time, actually. And that first audience, the first ones to hear this gospel, were wrestling with the aftermath. You know, how to carry on in their faith after the temple had been demolished. People were scattered. Lots of rumors were circulating. He's writing to people who are trying to discern their new relationship with God now that the temple, God's earthly home, is gone. Not only that, but the Israelites have been ruled by one foreign power after another for hundreds of years. For this audience, the first time the temple was destroyed was over 600 years ago. And since then, the Israelites had constantly been navigating the tension between living under God's laws and living under someone else's laws. We had the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, side note, led by Alexander the Great, who called himself the Son of God. Then we had the Egyptians, the Greeks again, and finally the Romans. The time period that's recorded by the various authors of the New Testament is the time in which Rome ruled Palestine. And Palestine, of course, is where Jerusalem was located. 
This was the era of the Pax Romana, Roman peace, which was, of course, forcibly imposed and highly taxed. So from the year 47 to 4 BCE, Herod the Great ruled Palestine. You may remember his name from this or other gospel accounts of Jesus's birth. Herod was half Jewish, but since he was working for Rome, the Jewish people viewed him as a foreigner and a Roman collaborator. And Herod the Great's boss was Rome's first great emperor, Caesar Augustus, who ruled from 27 BCE to 14 CE. And Caesar Augustus was also known as son of God. So when we think about the world in which Jesus was born, we might think of Herod as sort of the governor and Augustus was like the president. They were the guys who were in charge when Jesus was born in 4 BCE. Now, whether the Israelites were free to practice their religious customs really depended on whatever foreign party was in power at the time. They certainly went through long periods of actually not being allowed. It was illegal for them to practice things like circumcision. Now, under Roman rule, Rome did allow a variety of religions that it considered to be harmless. But Rome condemned all forms of social unrest, like prophets who agitated for social change, traitors, and insurgents. It's not unlike most regimes since then, actually, in that way. The powers that be never take kindly to those that rise up and preach a message of resistance and change, which is why as was prophesied before his birth, this character Jesus was such a threat to the political and religious powers of his day. We learn in Luke 1 that there is an angel of God who is named Gabriel, and this angel is sent on two special back-to-back missions. So the angel Gabriel is first sent to this elderly priest, Zechariah, to tell him that his also elderly wife is going to conceive and bear him a son. Now, you may have heard this familiar story, um, Abraham and Sarah, ages and ages ago. That story was certainly well known among the Israelites. So this idea of um, a prophecy that this older couple is going to conceive is not too far out there. Um, But actually in this story, Zechariah doubts. He doubts the, the message from Gabriel. And for that, Gabriel makes him mute, unable to speak until after the child is born. Then in the next scene, Gabriel makes another visit, pronouncing the second divine conception, and this time it's to an engaged but unmarried young girl named Mary living in a little armpit town from which we later learn everyone says nothing good comes from there. And the prophecy was that she would conceive and bear a son who, quote, will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now, remember, no one was sitting on David's throne at this time. The Israelites didn't have their own king anymore, and they hadn't for hundreds of years. They had been conquered and ruled by one foreign power after another for centuries. And although there was a half-Jew ruling over Palestine, he was considered a sellout, and he might as well have been a full-on Gentile. But instead of questioning the political realities, her question to the angel was much more personal and immediate and intimate. Uh, I know how these things work, 
and I am a virgin. How's this going to happen? Without missing a beat, the angel says that the Holy Spirit is going to impregnate Mary and this child will be called the Son of God. And that designation, that title is huge because you remember who else called himself the Son of God, right? Caesar. Hundreds of years before that, the Greek ruler Alexander the Great also took that title. But in Mary's day, the term Son of God was reserved for Caesar and no one else. So I have to think that when she heard Son of God, she must have thought of Caesar. Plus, the angel had already said this child would sit on David's throne, would rule forever. And even if she didn't understand what all of that meant, wouldn't she have feared for his life? Knowing, even if only in some vague way, that this was a prophecy of political dissension, that he would one day become a threat to the powers that be. But instead of responding in fear, her response was humble and powerful faith. Quote, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And this beautiful posture of humility that Mary embodies, that's the example that Jesus grows up with and follows as an adult. We see it most strikingly in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is just wrecked about the path before him, pleading with God to let this cup pass, find another way, not the cross, not this death. But in the end, He submitted, saying, Not my will, but yours be done. I want to go back to one other thing, though, so that we don't overlook the significance of what's happening here. When the angel Gabriel delivers the prophecy about John the Baptist, he delivers it to Zechariah. Even though this was news about a pregnancy, and our modern ears might think that the mom, the mom-to-be, would be deserving of that first announcement, the news coming first to Zechariah would have actually made sense in that era. You know, not only was he the man, he was also a priest. And the angel visited him while he was serving at the temple. Not only that, it was also when he had this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the holy sanctuary to offer incense. So here he was, a Jewish man, a priest, who was in God's house, and God showed up. He had this rare chance to enter the presence of God, and one of God's messengers shows up with some startling news. But all of that actually is in line with what we know about the Israelites and God's interaction with them. What happens next? That's the unexpected part. For that second pregnancy announcement, arguably way more important than the first one, the angel didn't go to the sanctuary or even the temple. The angel didn't even go to Jerusalem to make this announcement. You know, if we think of God as in some mystical way dwelling in Jerusalem in this story, then we can imagine God's messenger being with God in Jerusalem. That's where the journey begins. But this message had to be delivered outside the city walls, way down the road to a little town called Nazareth. What's more, Nazareth was on the other side of Samaria, from Jerusalem. Now, we don't even have time to get into how the Jews and Samaritans felt about each other, but just know that they were like the sharks and the jets, Capulets and the Montagues, Patriot fans, and pretty much any other NFL fans. They could not stand each other. And Jews traveling 
north from Jerusalem would actually go way out of their way to go around Samaria instead of going through it. They would go out of their way so that they did not have to cross paths with, interact with, or heaven forbid, rely on the hospitality of any Samaritans. They would go around to get to Galilee and beyond. So I'm wondering if there's some significance to this, that God entrusted God's good news to a place not only outside the city walls, but through and beyond the territory of the hated neighbors, the others, them. And God entrusted God's good news to a person outside the center of power and influence, whose class showed up in the prayers of the powerful as they were thanking God that they had not been born of a lesser class. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Did you know that in ancient Judaism, there was a common prayer offered by Jewish men in the morning in which they thanked God that they had not been born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman? True story, guys. And yet, God entrusted God's good news to someone whose gender and age were a liability, a young unmarried girl at a time when women were someone else's property. And because she was engaged, she was actually in transition from being the property of her father to becoming the property of Joseph, her fiancé. God entrusted God's self to a girl who couldn't hold property or speak publicly. To this young girl's womb, God entrusted God's self, God's good news. God could have chosen literally any form to come in. And God chose to come in the miracle of a fertilized egg, cells that divided and divided to create a whole beautiful baby boy. God trusted this young girl to nourish and sustain and care for this new life growing inside of her. God chose to come through the birth canal, experiencing all of human life from beginning to end. Sustained for months by his mother's milk, learning to eat the food his mother prepared, God trusted this young girl to feed and clothe and protect this baby. God trusted this young girl to teach right from wrong and lead by example and tend to wounds and love this child. God chose the slow path of learning to talk, crawl, walk, and run, playing games with neighbor kids, witnessing the faith of his parents and community long before ever engaging in ministry among us. God trusted this young girl to be God's mother. I mean, the depth of God's vulnerability is striking. God goes outside the temple, outside the city walls, passes right by those neighbors that everyone else avoids and hates, goes right through their neighborhood, actually, to get to where God wants to settle into a young womb in complete surrender and risk, totally dependent on Mary and her community for everything. That's where God goes. God has always been in the business of crossing boundaries. Your borders your red lines, your walls, they don't define where God does and doesn't go. I am who I am and I go where I go. Sometimes that will take us by surprise. And this is the upside down world of God's community to which Luke introduces us. 
It's all-inclusive, and it reverses our expectations. Just when we think we have things figured out, there's a plot twist. In Mary's song, The Magnificat, which we see at the end of this chapter, we see this melodic reversal of her poverty and powerlessness. We see how God reverses that, how God raises the lowly and makes her rich in ways that really matter. So here's Mary's song, and this is in Eugene Peterson's interpretation of the Bible called The Message. Mary said, I'm bursting with God news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior God. God took one good look at me and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. To God, whose very name is holy, set apart from all others, his mercy flows in wave after wave on those who are in awe before him. His, he bared his arm and showed his strength. Scattered the bluffing braggarts, he knocked tyrants off their high horses, pulled victims out of the mud. The starving poor sat down to a banquet, the callous rich were left out in the cold. He embraced his chosen child, Israel. He remembered and piled on the mercies, piled them high. It's exactly what he promised, beginning with Abraham and right up to now. The Word of the Lord. God goes outside the city gates to show us how those we think are on the outside are actually on the inside. May it be with us according to God's word. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you are always welcome in God's community. And may those who wear the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise considered faith leaders, may you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. May it be with us according to God's word. If something was stirred in you today, reach out. Hearing from you helps to shape the future of this podcast and this community. You can email me at jenhalechristie at gmail.com or connect on Instagram or Facebook at jenhalechristie. Thank you to all of you who have already emailed, texted, and connected through social media. I am so grateful to hear from you, to know who you are, to know that this matters to you, and to know that you want to be part of something like this. If you will subscribe, like, and review this podcast on iTunes or whatever player you're using, it helps others to find it. So thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.